Welcome to the Tokyo Citadel Builders podcast. This show is hosted by three Christian Bitcoin maximalists in Tokyo. We agree on very little except that Bitcoin is money and a tool we can use to help us build a better future. We discuss current topics in Japan and Bitcoin and how our lives are impacted by the growing Bitcoinization of the world. We interview builders on Bitcoin to learn about how Bitcoin can help us push back against government encroachment, enable us to retain financial sovereignty, and empower us to secure ourselves against corporate and government surveillance. Sat by sat, we are building a Bitcoin economy in Tokyo and connecting ourselves to citadels throughout the world. This show is hosted by We Three Gentlemen, Doomer Dash, Meta Mike, and me, Andy. We are a value for value podcast, so if you've enjoyed the show, hit us up with a thousand sat boost on Fountain or show us some love on our tokyocitadel.com website. Connect with us on Twitter and Noster at Tokyo Citadel. And we are live, gentlemen. Good to see you. Doomer, soon to be known as Diglett Dash. Mike, how's living? Everything's good. I like Dash's new nickname. Hmm. We'll have to do a, a background on the Diglett Dash uh, development at some point. I'm, I'm not actually following that. <laughs> what is, what is yeah. this? Your po- when you said it was better to have uh, Pokemon cards than something oh. currency. And Diglett, I found a D Pokemon. I didn't know that off the top of my head, so I had to do a little bit of searching. But apparently there's one called Diglett, which buries himself in the ground. And actually, that works quite well for you, in my opinion. I'll die on that hill. I think Pokemon is a good investment. So, <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, <laughs> yes, listeners, be careful. Uh, Diglett Dash wants you to buy Pokemon cards and gold. And then I guess if you have any money left, you can buy some Bitcoin. Nah, maybe. Yeah. Mm. So we got the standard set up for today. We'll start off with you, baby. What do we got going on in Japan? So in Japan, uh, as usual, I got three stories here to go through for the listeners this week. Uh, so the first one's actually uh, quote unquote cryptocurrency related. So the Japan continues to run headlong down the road of shitcoinery, um, uh, unfortunately. So the first um, news story is actually released in the press today. It's KDDI, who are the second largest um, carrier out here. Um, just behind NTT, Ser- seriously ma- major company. Um, and they have partnered with a company called Hashport. Sounds bad already, I know, and it, and it, and it is. I'm going to confirm your worst fears here because um, what they plan to do is is some kind of stable coin stroke NFT uh, shitcoinery um, partner together. Um, and so KDDI actually launched some kind of uh, digital wallet called uh, Arufayu, in um in march this year um and so the sort of the speculation in the in the article that i read was that they were going to add they were going to partner with hashport to maybe add some kind of uh stable coin but also nft capability into that wallet um also something of note i think and even though it's a little far out now is um we have this uh world expo coming up in osaka in 2025 this is an event that happens every five years um you know and the great and the good of our time get together and they they talk about what the um you know the the uh, bleeding edge technology etc is um and the theme of the 2025 expo is designing future society for our lives so you know sounds like a dystopian hell to me 
Uh, I'm sure it's I'm sure it's going to be just this um, you know this bacchanalia of, of shit coinery and and dystopian you know panopticon surveillance and um, and I'm sure that you know that our, our, our overlords the central planners the government um, you know various G7 nations will be well well in represented um, and and they'll be salivating over the thought of of this event but um, apparently Hushport is doing something at this event um, I had heard that there was going to be zero cash. It's going to be a cashless event. They won't allow. They won't accept cash at the uh, in the expo. The expo actually runs for six months in 2025. I didn't know that. Um, it's also the third time that Osaka had as as hosted the events. They hosted it in 1970 and 1990. Um, and so, yeah, there's there's you know if you if you want to attend. Um, you will probably need to use some kind of KDDI Hashport shitcoin wallet to, uh, you know, to pay for your ramen noodles and, and whatever else they have there. Just out um, of hold on, yeah. just out of curiosity, is the uh, is is uh, KDDI is this a, is this an ETH coin or is this their own? Um, this their own chain? That's a great question. I yeah, as you know, I'm I know very little about um shit coins although i do i did read it was polygon i think it's a polygon the one which is like an ethereum competitor yeah they yeah, if i screwed these, that up this, yeah this is where we get into the confusion whether polygon is a, a an eth thing or not an eth thing i have no idea but if it's polygon then i it's probably somewhat eth adjacent although this is the you know, I don't know if you know that this is like the third or fourth iteration of KDDI trying the um, the shitcoin thing. So this isn't like super out of out of step with them. It's also not anything that's been particularly successful to date. You know what I mean? This is they tried. Yeah. They did. They wrote the KDDI tried their own uh, enterprise blockchain, which we all know how well those worked. Um, then they did another one uh, soon thereafter, and now. They're like two years late to the NFT party, so I don't know. This seems uh, not that I support this kind of thing, but this seems like stand to Japanese uh, taking up the rear execution that will not really amount to anything because nothing else, nothing they, nothing else they've tried has really amounted to much. Just seems like a uh, a VC money grab on the back end of something. I I agree with you that they're, they're a day late and a dollar short, even to what we know is just a dead end anyway right so the whole web3 thing is is a scam you have to get in early you have to it's a pump and dump right so you have to issue your own token pump up the price and then dump that on retail that's that's how web3 works the japanese haven't got the memo um so they think it's the future of you know payments um and you know it's one of those things that unless it, that you know I just don't think that they are going to get it, and we're going to see the further decline of uh, of Japan. Unfortunately, as an economic powerhouse, partly as a reason, uh, partly as for, with this kind of thing as a reason, right? They just keep they just keep doing the wrong things. Um, I didn't know that KDDI had had this is you know one of several iterations. It doesn't surprise me. I mean, the carriers have been kind of desperate ever since. Um, you know, obviously the internet went mainstream, and, and people worked out that they could communicate with one another without paying outrageous fees to the carriers and um you know ever since then the carriers have been working out new ways to scam us um so i guess you know uh crypto nfts are a kind of good fit there um but yeah like, like you say i don't think it's going to work um what, what about the expo the world expo are you gentlemen excited about that 
Was it? I mean, the one was it, is this the same one? I remember years ago. Now I wasn't here at the time, but for some reason, this is up in my memory that they had one in Nagoya, like maybe two thousand eight or something. Is this the same thing? They may have done. I had I did a little bit of research, um, but it wasn't as maybe thorough as 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 I'd like. And um, I, I I also vaguely remembered some kind of expo. Um, but yeah, I'll um, I'll check that out maybe when when we're when we're chatting and, and 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 let you guys know but i don't know i mean i've never really paid attention to these kind of things before um it was just always some, something you see on the news um and you kind of ignore or at least i have um but you know obviously with recent developments over the last th- you know several years when, when you start seeing encroachment of government and the private sector on individual liberty um privacy violations etc and um you, you, you know you start to pay more attention so i, I think i will be watching closely what they're saying um, at the 2025 Expo. I think one, one of the advantages that we have is that these people really don't try and hide their agenda. And so I'm sure it's going to be, uh, you know, front and center and, and, and um, um, you know, what, what they say we can, you, can, you can probably believe uh, is, is what they're going to try and do. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, for that reason, I think I'll be, I'll be paying is, close attention. Is this world, is this uh, expo like one of those, you know, they used to have these back in the day, right? You know, obviously this before my time, but they used to have like in the fifties, like the world expo and, you know, it would give you like, Oh, in 20 years, we're going to have an iron that, you know, runs off of steam and, you know, it does, does the thing for you and you'll have a mechanical arm robot in your, you know, in your dressing room to help put on your clothes. You know what I'm talking about? Like back in the day, these really like handy, uh, but, Walt Disney kind of World Expo kind of things. Yeah, back in the day, I think it was fu- it was fun like that, right? Like back when we were all watching sort of Star Trek, and and the future was going to be, um, yeah, you know, this kind of utopia. Um, I, you know, yeah, I, I think that was the that was the deal. I think now, you know, we're all watching Black Mirror on Netflix, and 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 the future doesn't look so bright anymore. And I think so. The the kind of things we're going to be seeing at the expo, I think, are going to be more in line with that. I would have thought more, you know, ever increasing surveillance. Of course, it'll be packaged as this kind of, you know, paternalistic, like um, we're making society safer. We, we, you know, we're doing this to shut down the terrorists, you know, and et cetera, et cetera. But what we'll what we'll really be seeing is, you know, things like. Um, you know, CBDC like, uh, you know, payments. Um, we'll see things like digital IDs. These are all going to be pushed, I'm sure, very heavily at the expo. Did you, uh, did you say at the expo it's, um, they're going to be highlighting that? I, I guess we didn't, the, 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 whatever the hell KDAI thing there is it, you said it was a stable, a stable coin, um, slash nft yeah yeah they, the they didn't hell, go what in the hell is that supposed to do like they they didn't go into too many details but i do know that the japanese government is very excited about stable coins they've gone out of the way to change legislation recently to make to to pave the way to to create stable coins i actually watched a diamond hands uh kind of seminar that uh, koji over there hosted um, I think it was this week. It was a few days ago. And, um, there was a guy there who was talking Japanese d- 
dude. I think he was some kind of professor of blockchain or something. Uh, he was supposed to be some kind of big authority, but he was he was talking. He was getting very excited to talk about stable coins. Um, Tedico was talking about uh, Bitcoin and making a lot of sense. Um, and 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 he just didn't get it right. He just didn't he just didn't understand Bitcoin. But for for stable coins, he he, he thought you know that was the thing. And so I just think it's this kind of it's 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 blessed. It's approved by the state. And there's this idea that it's kind of exciting. It's going to enable these new use cases, um, you know, instant payments and things like that, which is all true. And, and so I think for a lot of these people who are into stable coins, they think, well, well, okay, so what's the point in Bitcoin then? Like, like Bitcoin maybe had a use as a kind of prototype or a proof of concept, but now we've got these stable coins. We get all of those benefits, but it's more envi- environmentally friendly. There's a reg- regulation around to support them. Um, you get the, you know, you, you solve the volatility problem. In their mind, that's a problem, of course. Um, and so for, for, for most people, for the most of these kind of, institutional people it's just a slap it's just a slam dunk it's a no-brainer right the stable coin is what you want um and what tedico was trying to explain in that diamond hands is um uh obviously she was quite limited in in, it was it was a polite event it was but but um but what she was trying to say is um is that bitcoin solves more more of the problem that we we can't necessarily trust the institutions right and with things like unilateral debasement of currency uh, uh censorship uh, seizure of assets etc the stablecoin is going to do nothing to, <laughs> to to help that in fact the stablecoin is only going to enable the people who are doing the seizing and the censoring um, and so that is, is this a japanese stable so this is a yen yeah stable well yeah. what i don't understand with yeah, that exactly. is, I mean, part of the reason that the dollar stable coin works is because it, it can be pegged it, it, it fluctuates but nothing like the rest of these i mean who the hell is going to be able to to uh peg a is this unless it's a government-backed cbdc like i don't get how any any anybody could hold japanese treasuries at whatever the hell percent and then try and make any like what you know like tether like good for next with tether how are you going to do that with the yen well, that's a good um, setup for our next. Let me let oh, me move on yeah, to our well, next. Yeah, you have it. Yeah, my apologies. I didn't mean to like. No, oh, no, no, no. It's a. It it's occurred to me to have a Japanese yen stable coin, especially at this point. No, so you, you you raise a very interesting point because I mean one of the things that we've seen with, for example, Tether making handover money handover fist, and I assume it's the same with Circle. Is the yeah that arbitrage you're talking about, right? Right, where you can hold treasuries risk free, quote unquote risk free. What is it now? Five percent um, for the, for short term, and 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 that's that's pure arbitrage because you don't have to pay out a yield on 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 the tether tokens. Now, your point: why would anyone do that with the yen? is a, is a great point. But um, interestingly, the Bank of Japan is meeting uh, this week, and so they're meeting on the twenty seventh and the twenty eighth, and there's some talk about rates rising. Um, so as we know, there's effectively yield curve control in operation in Japan right now, and the uh, rates pegged at um, below, um, I, I guess the fancy way to say it is 500 basis points, but, you know, 0, 0.5%. Um, and what the, the Nikkei did is they polled a number of uh, quote-unquote experts, so people from financial institutions, no, no more, et cetera, um, and, you know, these analysts, and, and they asked them what, what they ex- anticipated. Interestingly, the consensus view was a slight raise in 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 rates from between 0.5 to 0.75 um, was the consensus view. Now that doesn't not this is just what the analysts are predicting. It doesn't mean it's going to happen. But um um and and it, and if that happens, you know people were saying, well, 
the, 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 that would affect the exchange rate. Potentially, we could come down to as low as 135 yen to the dollar. We're currently at something like 140. Um, other people were saying, well, if there's no change, then we would we'd expect um, the yen to further weaken to maybe 145 to the dollar, something like that. But most people were thinking that, you know, that there would be an effective raise in the rates and that the... Um, you know the the uh, the exchange rate would the yen would strengthen a little on the back of that. Um, now, so that's so to to your point, Andy. I mean, if 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 the Bank of Japan is able to raise rates, this could be a potential way for the Japanese to play a similar thing, which I think the U.S. government should do if they were smart, which is embrace stable coins, because the world wants stable coins, and especially the quote unquote you know global South. Um, now most people want dollars, but that isn't, you know, a hundred percent the case, right? So we know that in most treasuries, for example, I believe the yen is something like the third, it depends on the treasury, it could be the third or fourth, um, um, highest percentage of, of a country's treasury behind the dollar, the euro, and perhaps the yuan. Um, and, um, and so, you know, potentially if the Japanese can, uh, enable their currency to be kind of held digitally like this. There's a hope that um, in, you know individuals in certain countries would want to hold it, um, but also that you know to your point there'd be an incentive there if they can raise rates to a certain extent that there'd be kind of an arbitrage or a profit opportunity for someone to buy government shit coins, you know, or AKA uh, treasuries or government bonds. Um, so that, so that could be the play here that maybe that's why the government is so excited They they're kind of, uh, they, they think they could not to the same extent as uncle Sam, but to some extent, the Japanese can also export their inflation to the rest of the world. Any, any thoughts on that? Wait, I had a question is why, um, for the stable coin to emerge, why does raising rates make that more likely or like a better move for Japan? As opposed to if they just keep the rates low. Well, to, to Andy's point, I think it fixes incentives in that, like, why would anyone right now want to issue a stable coin? Because if you think in, in yen, right? Because if you think about it in dollar, in dollars, it's a, it's a no brainer because you can issue a stable coin um, and you don't pay any yield on the stable coin because people just appreciate the utility of, of kind of having a digital dollar as a bare asset. And so they, they don't they don't expect a yield. Um but but if you're the issuer of the stablecoin, you can you can then take the dollars and invest them into U.S. Treasuries, and you can make something like five percent completely risk free right now. And so if you if you have a large enough, whatever you want to call that, right, assets under management or or your your issuance, you, you think think about like five percent of billions of dollars, completely risk free uh, money that you're making. So that's that's the incentive then for somebody to actually go and issue um, these stablecoins. Yeah, I, I was thinking more along the lines of, isn't it the nation states themselves that are most interested in creating the, like, they want to push the CBDCs, which is essentially a stable coin. It's just a surveillance version, right? Well, yeah, I, I, I agree. But I think the smarter play is just to embrace the a private sector. And we've seen that with big tech, right? So the government doesn't need to run their own email servers or, or chat applications uh, or social media. They just have to r regulate you know, or capture the uh, private sector and they're able to spy on citizens. And in fact, it's even better for the governments in places like Japan and the US who have a pesky constitution. Um, if right. the government had to do things themselves, they actually have to obey the law. 
But if if the, if they are just having companies over comply to what they think is the regulation or what the regulation might be, uh, they completely circumvent the constitution and, and any kind of legal framework. So in in actual fact, it's better for governments, I think, to promote to promote um, the private sector to do this. Yeah, it's the same model, same dynamic as censorship, right? Like they just outsourced mm -hmm. it to these so-called private companies like Facebook and Twitter. And then you have the government legally censoring people. Um, I think so. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. But I, I guess it defeats the whole purpose for the user if there's going to be censor or sorry, uh, surveillance, well, surveillance or censorship at all. I mean, like as a user, why would you want to use anything like this unless you get digital privacy of it being a bearer asset where there's no KYC, right? No, but if there's going to be KYC, it just, why would I ever use it, you know, unless I'm forced you, to? You, you and I wouldn't, right? But 99% of the world doesn't give a damn about privacy. I mean, think about it. Why does anyone use Facebook? Um, you, you know, people right. are, People, this problem that people are trying to solve is more the debasement of their own local currencies, I believe. So if, you, if I'm in Argentina or if I'm in, um, I, I'm not sure where a good example is of a country that would buy Japanese yen, stable coins, but um, let's say I, I, Vietnam. I, I don't know. I don't know how, how, stable, how good Vietnam's currency is, but let's say people in Vietnam felt that you know, that maybe their inflation was 30% or um, anyway, it was, it, you know, the currency was a lot, it was debased at a, at a faster rate than the yen. They could potentially, you know, um, hold yen instead of the local currency. And they could do it in a way that the government couldn't seize because they had, it's like a digital bearer asset. Um, and so they didn't have to hold it in, in, a, in a Vietnamese bank account. Um, and so for them, you know, it's a way to, and, and uh, you know, may, maybe they're poor or they're, they they lack education, so they don't realize that Bitcoin is a far better way to do that. Um, so so for those kind of people, a kind of digital dollar or a digital yen would be an attractive proposition, despite the obvious shortcomings of of, of surveillance and potential um, seizure and censorship. I mean, for most you know, for most people who are just living paycheck to paycheck, or they're living on a few dollars a day, you know, they, that's the last of their concerns, right? They they just want to. Um, they just want to ensure that they can feed their family, um, and, and, and that's really that's really all it comes down to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for sure, the, the incentive structure is different for for most people in the world. Were, were you going to say something, Andy? Uh, no, just uh, babbling. You know, you know how I do babbling on. Please continue. Yeah, I, well, I, one thing I was curious about is, like, let's say something like that happened, or, I mean, we already have an existing one with Tether, because the long-term goal for the U.S. and I, I think a lot of these other countries and Europe and Japan is to roll out the CBDC and convert everything into that. They want the cashless society eventually, right? I mean, it can't happen overnight. It'll probably, it'll probably take a lot longer than people think, but... Um, that is the ultimate goal. So what, how would these stable coins, or these privately issued stable coins be affected or like how would it kind of lead into that world? Would something like Tether just get uh, like dismantled at the moment the CBDC gets rolled out or like would they try to get Tether to be in charge of the CBDC? Like how do you see that playing out? I, I just don't see the government ever doing a CBDC. It doesn't make sense for them to do that. You know, think about it. If I'm the U.S. government, let's let's talk about the U.S. Um, and 
I can go to a, a Tether and I can say, look, you know, we'll bless your what you're doing here, but you need to invest 100% of your treasury into U.S. treasuries. And you and you need to have one your one hundred percent reserves, and if I do that, and Tether continues to grow at the rate it's been growing, I can dollarize the entire world without having to do anything myself, right? I mean, Tether's doing all the hard work, but I'm forcing Tether to buy my treasuries, and that's going to fund my government deficit for the next twenty, thirty years. Because remember that the Russians and the Chinese aren't buying. Um, for example, the, the Chinese, I think, were the largest buyers of U.S. treasuries, but they're, they're now net sellers. And so the, the, the U.S. government has a problem in that it, all of the debt right now and the deficit's being monetized by the, by the Federal Reserve, right, which is just it's third world, it's banana republic stuff. I mean, the U.S. is just printing money to, to pay for its deficit. Now, if they can have the stablecoin providers buy their uh, treasury, it's, it solves the, the problem. They can continue to spend all, all of the obscene amounts of money on the military that they do and continue to dominate the planet for another, you know, 50, 100 years. That's the way I see it. And so I just don't see the incentive for the government to issue the CBD for itself. And you might say, well, or they want to surveil. But like we just talked about, I mean, just because a private company is doing something doesn't mean the government can't, you know, uh, capture them and regulate them and have have them do the surveillance on their behalf. And in fact, as we already pointed out, it's better that way, often better that way, because you can circumvent the Constitution. So I just think any smart government is going to want to outsource this to the private sector. And and maybe if we do see an attempt to do a, a CBDC, it would be like a more... Um, you know, maybe it'd be the EU because th- those guys are so dumb, and I don't know. But I, I just, I just, but, but they would, would you, could you honestly think the EU would be able to do something as complex as issue a, a CBDC? I mean, they they can barely build a bridge, right? So I, I, I really don't see the government doing this for themselves. Yeah, I mean, the whole legal aspect is a good point, but one of the things is the there's going to need to be a legal change anyway because if people can just use cash illegally, right? So they have to make that illegal. Do you think that they're just going to do something like, oh, uh, cash is no longer legal tender and like it's, you have to return it and get your digital credits or they don't, they don't like, how's that? They don't need to. I mean, they, 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 we've seen, we, look, in the UK, uh, it's almost already impossible to use cash in, I would say, you know, based on my experience, about seventy percent of situations. So you will just you'll you'll go to 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 you may go to a soccer stadium, you may go to a restaurant, um, and you ask them to pay in cash, and they say no, we don't accept cash. You have to pay with a credit card. Now, mm-hmm. so you know some of that's some of that's compl- I guess compl- you know. I, so I'm not sure how much of coming is coming from the pressure from the government yet. I don't think any. I just think it's incentives for the businesses. You know, they don't want to deal with the cash. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and um, and but but it, but it, but the government did start putting pressure on them, right? And they start and and they could think of any number of excuses, right? They say, okay, well, we need to stop another pandemic, and cash is a is a vector for infection, and so you know, we just need to look. It's it's just we've got to flatten the curve here, guys. So it's just two years with no cash, and right. So you can just any any number of narratives can be manufactured to do this. I don't think they need to outright ban cash. I just don't see. It. I, you know, they, they know they don't need to do it. They like ninety percent of the population are just going to comply anyway, with um, with just soft soft power and um, right. Yeah, but I mean, the uh, that for large corporations, I definitely see that already in the U.S. at least. But uh, like for small businesses, there is still 
a strong incentive to use cash. Like, uh, um, for one, there's no fee on the card transaction, um, and no risk of chargebacks. And then also like a lot of small businesses will be able to finagle their tax reporting and like downplay their, their revenues, uh, when they accept cash only. So like, I think for small businesses, there is still a strong incentive for large corporations. Like obviously you, you, doesn't, you, you don't do those kinds of things. Um, but, uh, and I, I can see them just being co-opted. And I, and another thing is that's, that's not the case in Japan though, right? Like here you can pay for cash. You can pay with cash pretty much everywhere. And you, people you do like to use cash here. You can. Um, so the expo in 2025 that we just talked about is going to be the first case that I know where it's, you won't be able to use cash in Japan. So that's the, the it's, in remember, remember Japan's a very top down country and, and, and people move fast once the, you know, mm. the, the top has set the tone. So I, I think we're going to see in the back half of this decade an attack on cash in Japan as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm just wondering how, like, how long that kind of thing can take, even if people are kind of aggressive about it. I mean, maybe it could be quick, like within a couple of years, but I could also I, see it dragging for decades. It, it, it could, there could be a long tail, but I think the bulk of payments are going to be, uh, you know, with PayPay or with these private electronic payment options we have out here, Suica, PayPay, et cetera. I also saw some news this week about PayPay. They've managed this innovation now where they're going to enable um, payments even in an offline scenario. We'd spoken a little bit about that a few episodes ago in that that's one of the things that still prevents the government and these corporations from pushing more aggressively electronic payments because of a case, for example, with an earthquake where the infrastructure was down. Um, but if these, but it sounds like they've pretty much solved, they've solved this problem. Um, and so... Uh, that's the kind of last reason that anyone would have to, you know, um, object to these to these things, right? And uh, other than you know tinfoil hat, you know, we can't trust the government, which, <laughs> which uh, you know, uh, you you guys know where I stand. But for, for for the again, the majority of the population, you know, they're not as red pilled as we are, and so I think they're just going to go along with this just for the sake of convenience. Yeah, I mean, can't disagree with that. Well, to keep us on schedule, can you finish us up here so we can uh, get on to the builders segment there? Yeah, let me let me wrap it up. So I just wanted to give a few interesting data points um, with regards to salary increases in Japan. We'd, we'd spoken a little bit about this um uh, a few episodes ago, but the, the, the data is now in. And so um, the average salary increase in listed companies um, over this of this financial period has been 3%. They had a massive 3% increase. Um, now, remember that um, inflation's only, I think it's like 2, 2.5% according to these guys. Um, and so, you know, every, everybody's getting richer. Um, I don't know why the price of things that I'm buying keeps doubling, but Anyway, I must be buying the wrong things. Um, and and if you might wonder, well, what what is that salary? That that salary, the average salary of a, of someone who remember is is a is a winner in Japan, right? If you join a listed company, you you're in the you're in the top percentile. You you're going to earn fifty two thousand dollars a year. 
right? So, um, and, you know, obviously some of that is the cheap yen uh, right now, but, you know, salary is not exactly stellar in Japan still. However, there are signs of change. So now that the average was 3%, but some of the top um, companies, the top increases, we saw Nippon Steel actually increase its salaries by 53% across the board. Um, so that's, their average salaries are up to 50, uh, 58K now, 58K US dollars. Um, and so, and, and that, that wasn't uncommon. So we saw, you know, several, um, double digit increases. So it seems like at least the cantillionaires, um, are kind of keeping up with the, the monetary debasement. Um, and so, you know, that could be, um, that could be something right now. One of the reasons for this is the government, which is very interventionist in Japan, as we have discussed before on prior shows. I mean, this is what's the difference between Japan and China, um, you know, in terms of the, the way the government works out here. As far as I can see, not much. Um, the, the LDP completely dominates. Um, and what, what, they, what they say to the listed companies, uh, the sort of, inst you know, the institutional-like companies that they, they generally do, they generally obey. Uh, one of the things the government has requested of these companies is that they do increase salaries, and and and, and the companies have done that. Um, the narrative is interesting because what they're trying to do is they're trying to switch from um, the last several decades, you know, three decades or so, where we've had zero growth in Japan or very, very low growth. And there's been this kind of cost control mindset in corporations. And so typically corporations, the way they uh, deliver value to shareholders is they lower their costs because the, you know, you can't really expand the top line. So you have to lower the bottom line. Um, but that creates a negative spiral. Or at least that's the Keynesian view. Um, because, um, you know, obviously every, everybody's sort of pressured in terms of the pricing goes down, creates a deflationary spiral and, uh, you know, is, is a cause of the economy dragging. And so from the Keynesian central bankers point of view, this is somewhat of a success, right? They've got inflation kind of steadily above 2% now. The average salary increase in listed companies is 3%. Um, and, um, they're shifting the mindset from this cost control to something where more capital has to consider, okay, how are we going to add value? How are we going to deploy this capital and actually grow at a rate that's um, more than uh, the rate of inflation? And the this encourages things like, you know, investment in productivity. Now, I actually think, and I want to play devil's advocate here, I'm, I, you know, I'm very critical of the government and the central bankers. However, one thing I have seen when I compare Japan to the UK and the US is there is certainly, when it comes to you know, the field I'm in, which is IT, um, Japanese companies tend to consider IT as just a cost center, that, and, and they just try and get the cheapest as possible and lower the cost as much as possible. And that has been a stupid, it's really boneheaded strategy for the last two decades, because in the UK and the US, you've had people investing in um, all sorts of IT, which has just helped uh, increase the productivity to the point that the J Japan is now the lowest productivity, or I believe the second lowest in the, in the, in the G8, or was it the G7? I think they were just ahead of Italy, but that may have changed. They may have dropped even further. The average salary in Japan now is lower than South Korea, right? So the, whatever, whatever the Japanese have been doing for the last three decades has been probably the, the absolute wrong thing to do. Um, and so I, I, just, just playing devil's advocate, I think that a little bit of inflation, maybe there's something to that, right? The, the Keynesian um, mindset. Um, and maybe the, one of the plus sides of this um, is going to be 
more companies in Japan trying to do things more intelligently, trying to invest in information technology, trying to get more out of their workforce, not by forcing people to work longer hours or work for less pay, but actually to enable them with tools um, to be more productive and actually compete better on on the global stage. Um, so that's my kind of positive. I'm, you know, I don't, I don't know where all this doom and dash came from. I, now and again, I have a positive take, but that's that that you know that's where I, I would put it to the sort of Bitcoin community and the hard money um, Austrian sort of. Uh, minded people that that there could be something to that um but but what do you think guys am i am i am i going crazy in the summer heat i mean i would put a more positive framing on the situation in japan maybe uh, at least a little bit like fifty thousand dollars just to put it into perspective i mean like would you rather make fifty thousand dollars in a japanese city or would you rather be making like seventy five, eighty thousand dollars in an American or city in America or England. Like I would take the take Japan over that. Japan's pretty affordable, and I think just the general quality of of life here, like infrastructure, amenities, and the cost of day to day things. I mean, you can you can easily spend a ton of money in Tokyo, but um, the the bottom level is like pretty high here and it doesn't cost that much. And uh, it's kind of like, you could even think of it just the, the public infrastructure. You could even think of it as a form of UBI, right? I mean, to get the equivalent quality in an American city, I mean, American cities are so trashy and dangerous even. And uh, to get the equivalent quality, you basically need to live in like a really wealthy neighborhood or a gated community or something uh, to, to be able to have a clean sidewalk, walk around at night and it be safe and these kinds of things. So, um, and the quality of the food here is a lot better for the price. And I think generally housing is, it's small, but it's like good quality and it's pretty affordable. Um, and especially when you compare it to American cities like, or Western cities like London or New York or something, it's the rent is even more than Tokyo. All great points. I, I to, to answer your question, I, I'm not sure because obviously I've not been in the the UK and the US living uh, for a long time in, in the UK. But um, but I I would think maybe if I was in like somewhere like Nashville, you know, I don't from 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 what I, I hear a lot of good things about about those kind of what would you call them second tier or whatever. Uh, but but red like freedom orientated places in America maybe could compete. But yeah, I completely agree with you when it comes to like the likes of London and um, New York. Yeah. And I mean, keep in mind, I mean, you can, it depends which industry you're in. Like if you work in tech or something, you can make good money in one of those second tier cities. And then it works out really well because you have a low cost of living and you have a high income if you're like doing software development or something. Um, But uh, generally speaking, the income in those cities, the smaller U.S. cities is lower too. So um, you shouldn't compare it to like the average salary that someone's making in New York or something is going to be a lot higher than what someone makes in Nashville. And Nashville might be closer to what people are making in Tokyo. All good points, and it's good to finish on a positive note. Well, thank you, baby. Yeah, that's it. We could have gone. We could have gone on for hours on that one. Sorry for uh, slowing down the CBDC talk. We should probably have uh, our own 
CBDC episode at some point, but moving us along, that's what's going on in Japan. And for the Builders segment, wanted to do a little bit of a, I'll, I'll be quick on this one. It's something called Bitcoin Bay. Shout out to another Citadel building in the great state of Florida where the sun shines and apparently Bitcoin is in use. There's uh, this uh, place called uh, Bitcoin Bay, which is in Tampa, Tampa, Florida. Um, And I'll just quickly go through uh, their story um, and highlight some of what they're doing there. They said after flying out to Austin for Bit uh, Bit Devs for eight straight months, our resident lightning dev Benny Hoddle or at Benny Hoddle wanted to create a more action-oriented group here and started Bit uh, Tampa Bit Devs in January 2022. Uh, fast forward a year and they're hosting five events a month. Local core group have learned to use every tool and they now teach others. So now they decided to start and organize and thus began Bitcoin Bay. They are a nonprofit organization focusing on education, local business, community service, and they'll be hosting Bitcoin Bay boot camps for middle and high schoolers to give them a crash course in money and Bitcoin over half a day. Uh, they host business workshops where they showcase new tools for businesses and how to interact and operate on Bitcoin. They, uh, they coordinate community service events, cleaning and helping the beautiful city of Tampa. And they host family events. People can bring their relatives slash wives to something other than a bunch of dudes talking about Bitcoin. Uh, their goal is to create a circular economy. Uh, to us, that is community, prosperity, resilience. And they are building a community of people who have their heads up to see what's going on around them and willing to bring out change. They prefer members be Florida homegrown, but they welcome transplants who come seeking freedom in Florida. Uh, they're blessed to be living in these times, yada, yada, yada. All that's, uh, that was a quick overview. They, uh, As I said, they, they do stuff with families and Bitcoin meetups. They do stuff with businesses. They got a lot going on down there in Tampa. I was unaware of this rather impressive group. Um, I think something like this is uh, where we as uh, Citadel builders can look to make steps forward. These guys seem to be really knocking it out of the park there. They don't get a whole lot of advertising, but hopefully... Uh, the great, uh, great state of Florida, and the great, uh, the great folks down there in Tampa can be doing more to show to show how it's done to lead the way. You guys got any comments? I think for, uh, for cool. me, it's, yeah, and it sounds cool. And I'm, I mean, the more we can get of these, uh, you know, these little citadels sp- sprouting up all over the world, the better. And uh, yeah, I'd like uh, if I'm, you know, if ever ever visit in Florida, I'd like to pay them a visit. Speaking yeah, of, are, good. You, are you guys planning to go to any of these like international or big Bitcoin meetups, like whether Vietnam or the Philippines or Miami or California or whatever? Like there's so many of them now, but I've, I know we've talked about this before and talked about maybe going to, to one like in the Philippines, maybe. Yeah. My, my first, my first stop once are the first, the first one I want to get to is the Philippines. That, that, um, that seems like a, a well, constructed place to use use bitcoin and go on vacation have a good time yeah, yeah me too I've, i actually yeah i interviewed um zibel from bitcoin yeah. island 
Oh, and that was a great interview. And yeah, he really got me he bullish. I mean, he's got like, I think 200 or 300 places there who who all accept Bitcoin over the Lightning Network. So, I mean, he was just telling me, you know, you, you know right, right from ordering like um, hotels, uh, the food, everything, you can just order it in SAT. So yeah, I'm definitely going to visit um, hopefully sometime in the next year. Oh, cool. Yeah, I, I saw him sharing something um, about like it's actually even pretty easy to get residents, like longer term residents in Boracay. And you can just live in that little Bitcoin hub area, which ap apparently you can just live off of your Bitcoin. Everyone's accepting it or like a ton of a ton of stores and local merchants are are accepting Bitcoin out there. I still haven't seen anything like that where like everyone's using Bitcoin and uh I assume it's happening in El Salvador. I don't know. I've heard positive and negative things about El Salvador, but that seems like to be the most built up in, in terms of Bitcoin built up place in terms of circular Bitcoin economy besides El Salvador that I've heard of maybe even more than El Salvador. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd actually, I don't know that I would say more so, but I'd be very, I, it's it, uh, a neck and neck race between visiting El Salvador and actually the, the Boracay Island. Cause the Boracay Island seems, um, as you said, much more in, uh, it's not a whole nation state. It's a very, uh, closed or not closed, but a very small community where you can actually see, uh, see, see it working on the ground. Yeah. Well, that is Bitcoin Bay. Shout out Bitcoin Bay. Keep doing your thing. And that's it for the Builder segment, which leads us to Big Mike. What are we doing? Uh, we're going to continue the Color Revolutions discussion. Um, unfortunately, I, uh, Dash had like a long list of talking points and questions that he had when he read through the FBF Substack Color Revolution series, but that's lost now because I didn't, unless Dash has it, because I didn't save a copy of it. And we have our chat on auto delete. So I wanted to go through that list of questions, but uh, it lost. So I don't know if you remember any of those questions. I guess you can just bring them up as we go along, Dash. But um, uh, actually, and there was actually something I just saw today related to this subject. Did you guys see that? Um, I didn't see Bukele say this directly, but like someone was sharing it that El Salvador president wants to unite all seven countries in Central America. And like create some kind of political structure, like yeah, an international. I I, I was, yeah, he said that a couple of days ago. I, I, I was going to try and figure out more what he if he said anything more expansive on that, but I hadn't I hadn't seen anything yet. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if it has anything to do with like protection from foreign interference from like the globalist American Empire, like economic. There could be economic things, but this sounds isn't isn't this this sounds kind of like what got uh, Gaddafi killed by the deep state, right? Didn't he want to do some kind of like Pan Africa, like get off of the dollar? Uh, they wanted to do some kind of gold standard thing. If he if he did like a Bitcoin standard version of that, that would it would just be more of a reason for why he'll be a color at least a color revolution target, if not greater. Right? What do you, what do you guys think about that? Absolutely. I mean, uh, so the Gaddafi thing is interesting because you know you can go back. You know, you got all those, those documentaries about how how he was the best. He was he was uh, the best friend of the U.S. for years, and then all of a sudden he was not, and then he got, he got the Hillary Clinton treatment. So with Bukele, um, the one difference though is he's so 
Um, like Gaddafi, he just, you know, he's scary Muslim terrorist guy. Um, it's going to be a little bit harder to paint him, uh, Bukele, I mean, as, as that. Um, he's Palestinian, so I guess they could pull that. But they're, 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 at least from a public persona perspective, he's so clean cut and he, you know, he's on Tucker, right? Uh, he's got a little bit of a harder, he, he, you know, uh, Gaddafi spoke notoriously kind of janky English. Um, but he's out, you know, he's out making speeches. He's, you know, make, cracking jokes on Twitter. Um, he's got a little bit of insulation, at least publicly. He's also got like the highest approval rating if, um, you know, polls being what they are, uh, of anybody, uh, in, in South or Central America. So he's got at least some, a little bit of a moat around him. Obviously that's not going to, if, 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 uh, <laughs> if the U S so decides that he needs to, uh, be, be, uh, de, de, deplatformed, then he shall be deplatformed. But he does at least have a little bit of a fighting chance. He's also dealing with non, um, non-consequential countries. Now we are America's front lawn or whatever the, whatever it was that, that he said they were, which is, oh, you know, America has, um, you know, domination over the Western hemisphere. But when Gaddafi did it, there was oil involved, right? Um, there's less so, uh, there, there's less of the, uh, there's less of that. Like nobody, nobody, nobody cares about Guatemala. Uh, nobody cares about uh, El Salvador or Honduras. So at least he's dealing at least or at least he is dealing in a little bit of a smaller league than North Africa or something. How much, how much of it do you guys think that um, I was, I was interviewing the guy that was doing roadrunner.lat, um, the kind of Nosta uh, ride, ride sharing service. And he's based in El Salvador. And we got into a little bit about Bukele and he, he, he thought that, it was interesting that Begali had been able to rise to power in a country where only a couple of years previous, you know, it was very easy to get a politician killed, for example. And so you've got this, like you're saying, Andy, very young, clean cut, charismatic guy sort of appearing out of nowhere and ascending to what seems to be like a place of supreme power. You know, um, it, it, does he have what? Well, so my, my question is, like, does he have like power, powerful friends? Is he kind of a made guy? And if so, who are those friends? Is it is it Chinese influence? Because one of the other things that Forty Two was saying on that in, in that interview is that there's a lot of Chinese money in the country, and the infrastructure was kind of um, being built by the Chinese, you know. Or or is it is it even the U.S. Um, for, for some for some five D chess reason? But yeah, I guess just my question would be like, is it you know is he is he protected? Is he a made guy? Yeah, I've heard some discussion on those lines and people have talked about how he's like taking loans from China and I wouldn't put it past them. I mean, I'm sure he has some kind of backdoor support from uh, like political powers like China. Um, although, I mean, from the uh, from like the perspective of where he is, I think that's a good move and uh, better I think the, I don't see the whole 5D chess angle of like, oh, it's the Western deep state playing manipulative games and doing psyops and like, he's just pretending to go up against the IMF and, uh, uh, clean up crime. And like, I, I think it's all real. And I, I think that the Chinese angle makes more sense because they would want to get good relations up to the borders of 
the U.S. and kind of push back against what the U.S. has been doing historically, right? Like the U.S. will see very quickly how people's principles change. And we've talked about this on this show where um, it's like, think about how crazy it is that you have people in D.C. and like the political class in America. They're talking about like they're they're putting out these narratives to Americans and to other Westerners that it's like your security, your freedom is at risk because of Putin's deadly invasion of Ukraine, which is like 5,000 miles away. Right. And now, but they have military, they've invaded countries all over the world. They have military bases all over the world. This whole conflict in U with Ukraine and Russia was provoked by NATO expansion, which to a large degree is controlled by American elites um, pushing eastward ever eastward towards Russia with, with the goal of meddling in Russia's affairs and getting NATO troops and weapons into Ukraine, right? Like that, that was the goal that provoked that. That was, those were the moves leading up to this that provoked that whole conflict. And so now like if China is going to do playing a long game and they're going to start doing similar things up on America's doorstep, uh, it'll be like the U S getting a taste of its own medicine. Right. Yeah, and I would um, just just to, uh, to respond to, to Dash. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would any any political power in any country it has some backing, right? I'm 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 increasingly persuaded by elite theory, and you know the the, the Italian elite theorists. The more I read of them, uh, so to think that Bukele is just some organic development would be silly. Um, but as with Mike, is that a bad thing that he's got powerful friends? I mean, it's just, that's just the way the world works. I mean, how would he be able to get rid of, you know, if just to, to, to take his side and then get rid of corrupt judges and, and, and capture gang members. How could you do any of that unless you had the, the levers to pull to actually get these people together? So, it, the problem is not that he has the power. The pro, uh, the difficulty is, will he use it for good or will he use it as every other putz that's, that, that's run, you know, some tinfoil dictator that's, that's been a general of whatever and, you know, run, run their uh, respective Latin American country into the ground, right? Well, you'd have thought if, if there is some power behind him, then he would follow their agenda he'd have to follow their agenda and so you know whether, whether he wanted to do good or bad or whatever good intentions he might have for the country ultimately has to deliver you know if, he, if he's protected and if he has been given resources to enable him to do things like you know shut down the, the criminal gangs in the country then that, that that comes with strings attached and so i wonder if it, if it is the chinese i mean a lot of that I wonder how much of his, for example, trolling on Twitter of the U.S., of how much of his going on, on interviews at the likes of Tucker, um, how much even of the Bitcoin thing is just this epic troll of the U.S., maybe with the, back, the backing, the full backing and knowledge of China and, and Russia. And, and we know that China and Russia are maybe not the most pro-Bitcoin countries, but what, they're definitely not pro-dollar. And I feel like, you know, what Bukele is doing in El Salvador is kind of helping with this narrative, which is discrediting the dollar as the global reserve currency. 
could could there be something there? Do you think where this this the, the Bitcoin thing that he's doing there is actually kind of sanctioned by, for example, China? Yeah, well, that that's what I'm saying is like that's why I think you for for you as a citizen of the EU or America, and you are like sick of what the deep state cabal is doing. Um, why would you not support that? It's it's like you have kind of aligned interests with these foreign powers that actually are pushing back, whether it's Russia or China. And from China's perspective, right? Like it's not necessarily that they need to be doing something totally nefarious themselves. They need to be subverting country, like foreign countries and overthrowing, like sowing social discord and overthrowing their traditions and everything in the way that America does that everywhere. Like it's kind of like you have a common enemy politically speaking with the U.S. deep state and um, discrediting and like humiliating them is kind of a shared goal that someone like Bukele might share with the CCP, might share with Putin, and also might share with like a lot of these frustrated people living in the U.S. EU, right? Um, so, and I think the the humiliation and the discrediting shouldn't be overlooked. And I think it's more than just trolling. I mean, like to a large degree, the only thing Trump ever did was a lot of trolling and humiliation of, of his political enemies. But that has like a real effect because I think the whole thing is kind of like a house of cards that's based on um, respect for their authority. And um, they can't stand to be humiliated. And that's why they hated Trump so much. One of the reasons. And, um, um, that's also why, like what I think it was, uh, Andy was saying that Bukele, one of the reasons it's going to be harder for them to overthrow him the way that they did with someone like Gaddafi is he actually has good optics. He's clean cut. He's well-spoken. He can speak English. He kind of like appeals to millennials and zoomers and, um, he seems kind of cool. And, uh, a big part of color revolutions is they need to kind of demonize you and make you look like this evil tyrant. Like you're the new Hitler and uh, you're like some crazy guy who wants to like commit genocide or something. And he clearly doesn't have that image. And um, like, I think like a large part of all of this stuff is image, right? It's like, what is, what does your image look like? And the U S regime is increasingly becoming discredited. Right. And people are starting to take f more foreign, like other foreign powers more seriously. Yeah, I think I, I'd agree with that. And so I guess my, my question then for, as a follow up from that would be, you know, if that's the case, is Bukele on the U.S. administration's radar um, at all? I mean, because because they're pretty distracted now with what's going on in Russia, you would have thought. And obviously there's always the Middle East, which is a big, you know focus point and distraction but do you think that the administration is the, is you know looking at Bekele as as a problem do you think that they would have to as you're I mean as you're saying a lot of this is about image and reputation and you know Bekele's kind of doing a good job at discred discrediting um the U.S. administration but is is he just like an, an an annoying fly right now that they can kind of swat at a little bit and ignore or do you think at some point they're going to have to like manufacture some kind of narrative around him to 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 kind of fight back? 
I don't know. What 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 are your thoughts with with regards to that? Like how how important he is, and and what what kind of steps they might take if they do think he's important. Yeah, I mean, who, I mean, it's hard for us to say. Like maybe maybe he will just kind of be a disappointment. Like you never know what's going to happen with someone like like this. But at the same time, maybe he's kind of flying under their radar. But also to an extent, they have recognized like that he's kind of um, insubordinate to who who is supposed to be his handlers and his puppet masters like according to the way that the u.s foreign policy establishment sees the, the world they, they just they just view all of these foreign leaders as like their governors right uh, governors of like their vassal states or whatever and uh if he's kind of disobeying them and not doing what he's supposed to do and he's getting off of the dollar standard that's one of the things that he moved to do and he, as far as I can see, he has done that successfully. Um, he he's already begun to make those necessary moves that others can follow, and he he set he set the model right. And um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. But <laughs> do do you guys have anything to add? The the um the color revolution part of it, right, is already evident. You have, despite, you know, a whatever the hell reduction in crime, a standard of living increase, a diaspora, El Salvadorian uh, return. I don't know what, what percentage, but people are going back. Uh, you have the entire media establishment, nevertheless, um, continuing, you know, to try and attack, you know, that's the, the color revolution, the, the biggest arm is usually media outlets, and then NPOs. Um, and what do you see trumpeted in most media is now what a Hitler-esque, Stalin-esque dictator he is by grabbing all these gang members, right? because of reports from various uh, human rights organizations, like he's taking the rights of the gang members and that's all being trumpeted and put out in, in the media. So it's already there. The difficulty that they're having is that at the end of the day, when you're not getting shot in the face, walking to the supermarket right, or having to track, you know, just take the big, you don't have to go four hours to transfer money through some suck ass, Western Union location in the middle of nowhere in some barrio, right? You have a hard time capturing car, uh, hearts and minds of the four rich oligarchs in your country and their 12 minions because it's a small country, right? You don't have a whole lot of these people. When everybody now can see drastic changes. So, I mean, yes, the, the, the color revolution part is that the U.S. tries to pull often works. But it's not um, insurmountable. Like it, it's not. It's not an unstoppable force. You know, they tried these, and you know, they tried them in Belarus. They tried them in Georgia. There's been a few places where they, they haven't been successful, and where they're not successful is when you have a a, a power backer, a Putin or something like that, to be that, to see what's coming. Whether you, you know whether you want to take his side on these things or not. What you can see, though, 
is Russia saw these things happening and said, not, not today, Satan. And they, you know, they, they would, they would go off and they said, well, you're not doing that uh, here. And they, they put in adequate defenses. So the color revolutions have uh, typically been worked through NPOs, NGOs, and the media. Now, if you can, if you can uh, anesthetize people to those, you have some level of chance standing back. Now, you know, to tie it together back with the China thing, who the hell knows about the China thing? But China, you know, I was talking with uh, Brendan from Uganda, who studied at the, the Confucius Institute. He learned Japanese. Oken, who I did another interview with a while back, he had the same kind of trajectory in Africa. Both of them had the same thing to say about their, their the Chinese backers. He goes, yeah, I'm sure that there's some kind of um, color, not color revolution, but there's some kind of uh, thing that they want. But they really don't care about what you do, how you live your life, what government you set up. They just want their money, right? So if there is money being, uh, if there is uh, money backers or power backers in somewhere like El Salvador, they very easily could be, he can do whatever the hell they want. They don't care what he does, how he does it, as long as they pay him back his money for whatever support they're giving, right? Which that transaction is very easy to to work out. If Bukele does a good job, he gets people back in, in town. They have a, a GDP increase. They get some uh, some people coming down to surf. They have people coming to use Bitcoin, whatever it is, however it is that he gets them down there, and he can pay them back their money. The Chinese, if it, you know, if it were to be the Chinese, wouldn't care at all what he does with Bitcoin or anything else. Yeah, and I mean, you, I think you bring up a really good point there. Is, but and like at the end of the day, why are we so repulsed and disgusted by the globalist American empire? Right, it's because it does things that standard empires don't do. It goes beyond into this like realm of evil activity that it, it goes beyond just like normal greed and imperialist expansion. And like, I want to extract money and resources and they're doing all that, but they're going further and they're like, they're not content with that. They need to push their demonic agenda. They need to be spreading abortion and feminism and LGBT. And like, they want you to have drag queen story hour in your African village. And until you do, they're not going to be happy. That's, that's why the globalist American empire is different from other world empires. And uh, I, I, like, I, I think that's co correct, at least at the moment. Like China doesn't really have an interest in spreading ideological. Maybe it's just because of the, the like um, forces, the, like the forces in the landscape, the geopolitical landscape that exists today. And like, maybe if they were in a different position, they would try to. But at least for the moment, they don't really seem to be doing that. They want to be making investments. They might want, like, they're doing standard things where they're going to be trying to profit, right? And maybe profit at your expense and uh, if you're, like, the local resident. But they're not subverting your religious, social traditions and things like that. And, like, why does the globalist American empire feel the need to do this? Why do, why do you need to be a drag queen? Like, why do your kids need to learn about drag queens? Why are they so demanding of that? I feel I just want to push back on that a little bit because I, you know, I think that any world empire generally wants to spread its culture, right? So we saw that with obviously the Islamic empires uh, in the Middle Ages with spreading Islam, or um, with maybe the European powers of that same, you know, time spreading Christianity. 
um, or, or even the Romans, right, um, spreading their language and, and sort of rule by law, etc. So I think I feel like that's that's fairly common to do. Now the problem to me, and, and I think that kind of worked with America as well, right, where we had this idea of the American dream when I was growing up, and it was a really powerful idea, and it was reinforced through the you know propaganda of Hollywood. Um, but actually, I think pretty much everybody, our, our kind of generation group, kind of believe in it. Um, or at least I did, right? And um, and it and it was kind of a good it was a good message, and I think it was grounded in conservative values. And of course, it, it's easy to forget what a conservative country America was just twenty, thirty years ago. I mean, you know, you go to the states now, you go to certain areas, for example, Las Vegas, and maybe Vegas was always like that. But I mean, there's just, there were just people smoking marijuana in the streets. Well, I remember, you know, if, if you like in, in America, if you were caught smoking marijuana, you you went to jail, right? So, I mean, America's changed a lot in the last, uh, you know, even in the last like decade or so. And I feel that that's the problem, right? Because, you know, when I, when I was growing up, America was forceful maybe with its mm, values, but they were values that everybody could kind of vibe with. Um, they made sense, right? It was like you work hard, you, you know, you save your money, you get on in life, you, you, you obey the, essentially the Ten Commandments. Um, they, they were kind of good conservative values that America was grounded in and, and you know, was, was founded in. I would argue, but but it seems like they've, they've just completely broken away and descended into degeneracy over the last. Definitely, it's increased in the last what half half decade, decade to the to the extent like where you point out where we've got like this for some reason I don't know where it came from, um, but this 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 stuff that nobody asks for and nobody wants the drugs dr drug queen story hour and you'd you'd almost think that it was like the enemies of America were doing this somehow. Like they were, they were having America, like for, they'd infiltrated America and they were having America try and push this agenda precisely so that America lost its cultural impact and, and, and people would, would push back. And I'm not suggesting that that's the case, but it almost, it, it's, it's just so ridiculous to me that they're doing this and I still can't work out why they're doing it. Um, but um, and so I, I don't know. I guess I'd like to just end on a question and say, do, do you think it's valid what I'm saying there? The pushback that all, all all empires typically tend to spread, try and spread the values, but those values tend to be more um, palatable or accepted by the uh, subjugated peoples, and that America was that way up until recently, but for some reason has flipped into this outright degeneracy now. And do you have any ideas of why that would be? So um, I think there's a mix. Like in some cases, yeah, they do want to spread and like indoctrinate you into their into their system, into their culture. Um, but then there's also a lot of cases where that's not necessarily the case. Like uh, oftentimes some kind of ruler or some empire just wants to gain territory, gain resources, gain more tax, tax cattle, or but not necessarily control the way you live your life socially, culturally, religiously. Like I think even in a lot of cases historically where Muslims conquered uh, Christian lands and they uh, subjected Christian peoples, like they, they wanted a lot of people to convert and they would incentivize people to convert to Islam um, by like saying you're subject to taxes unless you don't. But oftentimes they still allowed you to be a Christian as long as you just paid extra taxes. And I mean, 
taxes and like resource extraction and theft and that kind of thing, I, I think that like there should never be any expectation that that's going to go away. That's just a characteristic of the fallen world. But when it gets into this, like they need to like overthrow the family. They need to overthrow marriage. They need to overthrow uh, like normal, basic uh, understandings of life and what it means to be a human and not to mention religious values that go beyond that um, and replace it with all of this like totally demonic stuff. Um, And they need to do that all over the world and why that's happening. I mean, I don't think it's really possible to pinpoint like, what is the, like, is it just these elites in America who are pushing it or is it like, is it actually China CCP doing psyops and they're the ones who are really controlling Hollywood and trying to subvert people here to demoralize the population and so that they can later take over. I mean, ultimately at the end of the day, I think it doesn't matter. Like we can just recognize that it's the current, it's currently coming through this nation, this empire, right? Um, like, is it, go, is Putin pushing drag queen story hour onto Ukraine? And does he have any interest on doing that in, to the Ukrainian people? No, but the, uh, America does have an interest in doing that in all kinds of places. So who's ultimately behind what it's like, I, I, I don't even know who's ultimately behind the American empire, right? Like when we talk about the deep state cabal, I mean, we can point to figures who are puppets and figureheads, but like who's pulling their strings, who's controlling them. It's all like shadow interests and stuff. Like you can't really track this down. You can spend 24 hours a day reading all kinds of conspiracy, conspiracy theory stuff and you can gain more information, but ultimately you're just going to be just as confused at the end of the day, I think you, you just gain more, gain more knowledge, but it just opens up a bigger, deeper set of rabbit holes. Well, I mean, so that, and to that point we've, we've even seen, I've, I've watched a couple of speeches that Putin gave and I would say, you know, obviously I'm just like understanding this through the English translation, but he, he to me ranks alongside Bukele in that what he's saying uh, you know, if you watch him over an extended period, right? Like he'll do interviews. Um, and there was a famous one he did with the FT editor, which is really good. But he he just makes sense with every point he makes. But he actually highlights a lot a lot of this stuff, a lot of this cultural degeneracy in in the US. And it feels like, you know, for for what I don't know what the agenda is, what the reason is, but America's kind of handing the initiative and the impetus over to Putin and as, and especially and I think you touched on this Mike it's it's not obviously that uh, across the US population because the blue side you know whatever you know that the 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 more um you know the le- the leftists or, or the progressives or whatever you want to call them they typically you know they'll, they they demonize Putin um they won't listen to a word he says they won't even watch his interviews but for the people who are maybe a little bit disenfranchised certainly who are maybe the kind of people who voted for Trump in 2016, you know, they, they, they will uh, watch uh, Putin and listen to what he's saying and, and he's, and he's speaking to them. Um, and so it's just, it's, it's just, it's just bizarre to me that, you know, the, I mean, the, the U S is just so divided, but the, the, the Democrats are just so tone deaf to what, I mean, at least, at least, at least 50% of the population, the kind of the frustrations they're feeling. And, and it's like, it's, it's a bizarre world. It's a clown world we live in where, Vladimir Putin, you know, who's supposed to be quote unquote enemy of of, of the U.S. I guess you know, or, or, or a competing state, um, it, it speaks speaks to fifty percent of the U.S. population more than their own government. It's it's just it's a complete clown world to me. 
Yeah, I mean, exactly. That's the way I see it. And um, I mean, does Putin have his own interests? Do we know what his motivations are? Like, obviously, we don't. But at the end of the day, we can just see like, what are people like, what is he saying versus what is the US establishment saying? What is he doing versus what is the US establishment doing? By the way, like, all, I, someone pointed this out. I, I remember someone hearing someone say this not too long ago is like, all these Putin haters uh, who are like, saying he's the, the next Hitler, or whatever, like, who've been just buying in this rhetoric ever since two years ago. Um, how many of them have ever even looked into Putin? Like how many of them watch Putin's speeches and actually follow along with his speeches and watch him directly get, get firsthand accounts of what he does and what he says. They're all just reading American media and like American political activists in their social media feed. And that's what their whole image of someone like Putin and the Russian people is uh, shaped by. And the people who actually do pay closer attention to what's going on, I, I think it's like you said, like he actually kind of, what he says resonates more with uh, the spirit of people who are kind of aware and alert to what's going on in the West. There's actually, a, on this whole subject that we've been discussing, I screenshotted a comment. I forget which which article it was from in that FBF Substack Color Revolution series. One of the one of the pieces, there was a comment by this guy and he said this and like, let me say that, let me read it. And then you guys can give me comments to see if you disagree or, or agree with him. He said, as an American, it has taken a lot for me to get to the point where I'm rooting for the leaders of competing nations to embarrass the hell out of our ruling class. Even if that means harm to America as a whole, but that's where I'm at now. Why I see it as the lesser evil. If America's current ruling class is not reined in by embarrassing disasters and defeats, then we have, then we are doomed to endure a future where Big Brother is always watching and ready to sick the secret police on you, and where Big Brother is a flabby, green-haired transsexual who loves twerking in a g-string at drag shows for children. If that's the future of the quote liberal rules-based international order or whatever mealy-mouthed euphemism they've come up to describe they've come up with to describe the globo homo american empire then godspeed to she and putin when it comes to embarrassing the hell out of the gae's ruling class at least that gives us regular americans hope that we could someday replace our degenerate ruling class with leaders who have competence and character yeah the um yeah i mean how I mean, it'd be hard for any of us to, or the, any any of the three on us to argue with that sentiment, right? Um, the and the reason, you know, to go back, you know, I'll, I'll pull it forward to, to to interact with you what you just said, Mike. But to, for for Dash's question, who's doing what and where did it start? I mean, and don't all empires do this? You, America is an empire, as with Rome or whatever in the past. And we could say Rome ruled the, ruled the world and blah, 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 blah. Well, they didn't. You know, they had big swaths of land, so did the Greeks and, you know, the, the, uh, the Mongols and all these people. But you, America is, is kind of a unique beast in as much as post-Soviet collapse, they, in fact, did rule the world, right? There, there was no it was a unipolar world. There was no multipolarity. There was nobody on any, you know, patch of land on anywhere on the planet that had any ability to say no to the U S for, for a long period of time, which is a unique position 
for the U.S. And it got there by defeating the Soviet Union through its own kind of prototypical color revolutionary style. You know, what what defeated uh, the Russians? Well, I mean, uh, the Soviet Union, well, it was their crappy monetary, it was their crappy communist system. But also, I mean, we flooded our populace with a proto-color revolution. Everybody wanted, you know, America was cool, America was free, America had all this stuff. You know, and they put the the propaganda went in such that people in their own countries didn't want what was offered to them, whether it was substantially better. I mean, a lot of the Eastern Bloc countries didn't even have it as bad as maybe downtown St. Petersburg or whatever, right? That with, with the with the level of surveillance. And by the end, it wasn't as intense as it had been in the past during the early stages of Stalinism or whatnot. So, but America won the war through its uh, propaganda campaigns and was it, and that because you know and it'd be hard to to trace now and you'd need people who with a better knowledge of things but it seems that that morphed and uh, developed into a very very virulent strain uh, such that we have what we have now um, in the propaganda uh, wars and in the color revolution schema. And looking at it, and we have the we have the internet, and we have the uh, the um, uh, a different world that we live in now than than in the eighties and nineties, and we have the uh, the the ability to look back on things, and we can see that such that you know when somebody like that that guy who wrote the note, I don't know if it says who who that was, but writes that he's looking back, seeing what has happened, seeing how it's developed. And can now sit in a position to say, like, wherever in the hell the U.S. is going, <laughs> I, I want off the ship. I want, you know, stop the train. I've had enough. Right. And that is where we all on this call, I would imagine, end up thinking that we have no we have no place in whatever deformed, obnoxious uh, plan that the new America has for us. I, I'd agree with that. My only thing would be that I don't see any alternative in like the likes of Russia and China. And also that, um, you know, it's, it's kind of easy to criticize the, the Democrats and some of, some of their stuff is really egregious, like the, the, the trans activism stuff. Um, but, you know, let's let's remember. You know, I believe the Patriots Act was a work of the Republican administration, and they, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste. Well, they certainly didn't let nine eleven go to waste, and you know, started those wars out in the in in the Middle East, etc. And so, like, it just seems to me like um, in the even the, in, within the U.S., the red is just as bad as the blue. And then you go outside of the U.S. and you look at Putin and um, and and Xi Jinping and China, and and whereas culturally, yeah, I I rather live in those countries no doubt um you know japan would would also be in that bracket um you know at the same time the ever encroaching you know the state surveillance the digital ids the cbdc's the surveillance cameras um you know vaccine mandates etc it seems like all of those are happening in you know the, the likes of russia and china as well so you know it's kind of to me it's a the future's a little bit, it's kind of dark right now. It's like the U.S. maybe was a shining light. Maybe a lot of that was bullshit and propaganda, but, you know, at least believing something like that, you know, you know, what, what does it need you said who has a, 
uh, a why can can or can can get through anyhow or whatever he said. But like I feel like we don't we 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 don't have any. There's no shining light anymore. It's like every every option is a bad option and. Um, you know, and I guess why this is why we're doing the show, right? Because we're trying to work through these problems and we're trying to work out what the way forward is. But, um, you know, for me, the, the way forward is going to be outside of the G7. I feel like, you know, it might be somewhere like El Salvador, but it's where you slip through the cracks and there's hopefully going to be pockets, there's kind of citadels that sprout up and there's going to be places um, that are free. And that maybe as to, to the point earlier, someone, ra- someone raised the, the great point. I think it was you, Andy, where... Um, if, if you're able to see the color revolution attack coming in advance, you can kind of defend yourself against it. And so, you know, the idea is that you, you could maybe, you know, um, look, to, look to a place like that, right? Like a smaller place, which is um, freedom orientated and, 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 but, but also was able to resist the, um, the, you know, the attempts of color revolution from the U.S. So that, that, I guess that's my hope for the future. Well, may, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think, uh, any of Mike's point was um, that we want to live in China or even or or or, or Putin's Russia. It was just a matter of like uh, some. There needs to be a counterbalance just to to let run wild the the current um, American the current GAE is just untenable, or at least maybe it's tenable, but it's not something that any of us want. And we 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 are rooting for something to either wake America up the, or to uh, nullify some of its, its reach, correct? Yeah, exactly. You could kind of think of it as like a lesser of two evils type situation. I mean, like you said, do I want to live in the, the, the Chinese system? No. Uh, but, I mean, it's increasingly becoming worse and worse in the West. And... Um, I guess I, I would even push back on like this idea that um, in the past, even if you go back a few decades or even like five, six decades, it was like something totally different. I think that there's a clear trajectory from where it was to where it is today. And in the last, in the last episode, we, you asked the question dash actually is like, cause we were talking about one of these, um, like what are these buzzwords, these terms that the um, color revolutionaries use? And they, they use these terms like, oh, we're spreading democracy, blah, blah, blah. And like, we're fighting against these anti-democratic dictators. And, um, but you asked, why is it liberal democracy? Like, why are they always pushing liberal democracy? And that liberalism is the, that is the system, right? That is the political ideology that people have their hope in. Liberal democracy, also in like, Coomer capitalism and like those are what people placed their hope in like uh, throughout world war ii throughout the cold war as it was it was the alternative it was the alternative to fascism and um communism and at the end of the day i mean like is it so much better like yeah you were able like we're we were able to coom a lot more because of the capitalism but at the end of the day like liberalism itself is just based on freedom so-called freedom, like political freedom as a political concept. But when we've talked, I don't know if we've talked about it on this show, but we've talked about it in our like uh, Citadel group chat. Um, Like, what does that even mean that if this freedom, it's just a negative category, there's no positive content that drives it. So it's just, it's essentially just a vacuum. It's like a power vacuum and it's going to be filled by whoever comes and 
supplies the spiritual, metaphysical content that people are ultimately seeking because it can't fill that. And uh, like communism and capitalism can't fill that either, right? Because they're just totally materialistic systems, but people have that spiritual drive uh, that they long for. And when you have this giant system that everybody's putting hope in and it's like the primary, it's like the chief thing that you, um, chief ideology, it basically becomes your God, right? In, in these atheist secular worlds, um, you're going to end up turning to the first thing that satisfies that spiritual drive that you have innately as a human. So um, who supplied that? It's the people who are, creating these new spiritual systems, like redefining what it is to be human. You can be transhuman and we're pushing forward into this like techno cybernetic transhumanist world. Right. And like the world economic forum is, is going to start to fill some of these, um, these innate desires, spiritual desires that people have. And it's going to be this kind of like, and then even on the, you can see some of it in the like reactionary right-wing responses. They're even moving in their own like vitalist, spiritually vitalist like neo-pagan direction too and it's like um it's it's just moving in bad directions in every way yeah absolutely and um i think um we'll have to do a, a show on handsome thursday at some point um the um yeah the defense of i think that's a really interesting topic like how what what stands up against the ever the what stands up against the color revolution the encroachment of the 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 big l liberal democracy big l big d uh writ large um it's a hard question you know um but i do think as citadel citadel proponents and and developers you know one of the one of the most more important things is to know what's coming and then how to build the wall. And so at, at, at times, you know, the walls are necessary. Walls are dangerous because they keep people in as much as they keep people out, but they can be used effectively. The Chinese, uh, the great wall of China taught us that. Um, coming up on about an hour and a half here, gentlemen, Mike, can you give us some final thoughts? Actually, I, I would, kind of hope we do a third one on these we'll have to talk after we we stop recording but yeah mike or dash can you uh finish us up with, with any thoughts yeah sure actually i think we should do maybe one more on this subject because i didn't even get to uh <laughs> i think we, we went off on a bunch of tangents on that bukele discussion so i didn't even really get to um a lot of the things that i had planned for today actually one of the things that i just wanted to bring up because it was relevant to what we talked about last time um, I can make a quick point about it is just, I think a lot of people, especially the libertarians or the low libertarians, as we like to call them here, um, totally miss the point of understanding economic incentives, especially when it comes to media and media is a big, plays a huge role in, um, bringing forth, uh, driving these color revolutions. Right. And, um, the standard libertarian like understanding is like, Oh, the firm, the, the, the business take the, like the individual firm and that's like a business or a corporation or whatever. And if it's like a media company like CNN or something, it's going to be 
acting in its own financial interests. And this would apply to social media too, is like, they're just trying to maximize their ad revenue. So everything that they do is to, um, is to make the most money. And if that's to like get people to create conflicts and argue all day and work, work people up and rile them up, that keeps people on the platform for longer and they make more money and that's ultimately their incentive. And you could say the same thing about media is like, they're going to try to stir you up so that you watch them more. And I think this is like a totally naive and stupid way to look at things. Um, and it, uh, the economic incentives for these organizations, whether it's a like nonprofit or like so-called nonprofit um, or, or a, private business or something it's you can't take the in economic incentives that drive their activities at the level of the firm itself you have to understand the people who are controlling those firms and what their holistic economic incentive is which you can never actually know because you don't know what people's private, that's not public information in the same way, like a publicly traded company releases their quarterly reports and you can see like the, the money flows and everything. You can't do that with like some private owner of a corporation who has power to like make this push decisions through the board. Um, you don't know what the rest of his financial situation is. This is all private information. Um, so you can't do that kind of analysis on these media companies. And so like here, here's one of the things that I brought up last time was let's just say Facebook and Google made zero money from ads and they were going bankrupt. What I was saying last time is because of the role that they play in foreign policy and like, it's essentially like a military grade weapon. That's the way I would define it. The U S government would fund them that it would provide them all the funding that they need because it works in their interests. So it would keep them afloat. They don't need to make any money from ads. And if they do, it's, it's a nice bonus, but they would still, the U S government completely, completely needs American tech companies, social, especially social media to advance its, its own agendas. And so like to simplify the concept, here's an example is like Jeff Bezos. He has a ton of a huge share in Amazon. Amazon's like market cap is in the trillions, right? And it's annual revenues is probably in the hundreds of billions. Um, he bought the Washington post, right? And I've seen someone, I've seen people make this example before. And I think it drives the point for, forward is he owned, he bought the Washington post for $250 million. Okay. Do you think that his ultimate incentive is if he has control over both Amazon and the Washington post, do you think what he does with the Washington post is going to be in order to maximize the profitability of the Washington post. That's just like a completely naive way to look at it. If he could do something that would cause him to lose hundreds of millions of dollars on the Washington post, but cause him to gain billions of dollars with Amazon, he would do it in a second. Right. And so you have to understand that all media works that way, including social media. So you can't, you can't just look at the profit motive of the of the media company. And I think a lot of things make a lot more sense when you see it that way. That's a, that's a great final thought. I, I can't really follow that um, food for thought and look, look forward to getting into that. Uh, the media incentives on, on the next show we do. Um, I will say uh, Nosta fixes this, delete your Facebook, delete your Twitter, Zitter, whatever they're calling it now. 
stop stop watching Fox News and, and whatever else is out there. Um, you know, let's let's build our own social media and that and that's Nostra. Very good, gentlemen. Yeah, it's a great topic. Um, we definitely need a third, fourth, fifth, seventh. I like these. These are good. Thanks, Mike. Uh, enjoyed it. And we thank you for listening to us today. You can find us on Twitter and Noster at Tokyo Citadel. You can find us on our main site, tokyocitadel.com. And please check out our guests that, that you heard today. Support us on the Fountain app with a thousand sat boost. Or head on over to the site and hit us up with some love over there. Building sovereignty, privacy, and hope into the Tokyo Citadel. See you next time.